As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for that wonderful story from John's Gospel. Lord, if there are people here who've never heard that story before, I pray that they would learn from it, whatever it is you have for them this morning. And if there are people here who've heard it many, many times, show us something new. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Wow, after a story like that, you hardly need a sermon. But no, I'm not going to let you uh, get away with that. If only, if only, two poignant words that people so often cry in the face of disappointment, grief, or loss. I guess many of us have said those words a thousand times. If only God had healed my child. If only God would change my circumstances. If only God would stop the pain. If only. Well, the first thing that Lazarus' sister Martha says to Jesus is, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I've often wondered, was that a statement of faith or a statement of blame? If only you'd been here, he'd be alive. Faith or if only you had come, he wouldn't be dead. Blame. Well, maybe it was both. But I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, for the story begins some 20 verses before that exchange between Jesus and Martha. And St. John sets the scene at the beginning for this seventh sign, this last and great miracle in this gospel before the resurrection of Jesus himself. And if we go back to the beginning of this account, we learn that when Lazarus had become gravely ill, Mary and Martha had sent a message to Jesus saying in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Seems pretty clear from the Gospels that Jesus had a special relationship with this family. He had a particular affection for Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He had been in their home a number of times. They were friends. It's interesting that the sisters didn't ask Jesus to come straight away, although I get the impression that was rather what they were hoping for. Of course, there are many times in life when we don't quite know what we should ask for from Jesus, and it's enough just to tell him what's going on. But if indeed Mary and Martha had expected Jesus to come immediately when he got their message, he didn't. But, verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. No wonder Martha greeted him with her, if only. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And yet, though unknown to Martha at the time, the truth was that the delay of Jesus in responding to Mary and Martha's plea for help, that delay was for a purpose. And that purpose was bigger and greater and more significant than Lazarus's illness. Of course, when 
your brother or daughter or husband or mother is gravely ill and at death's door, it's hard to think of anything being more important than that. When you are no longer in control of your circumstances, when you are desperate for help, it is easy and understandable to lose any sense of perspective other than that which is right before you in whatever crisis you face. But in those times when all may seem hopeless, hold on. Hold on to the truth that Jesus is not deaf to your cries. He's not ignoring your prayers because he doesn't care about you or he has better things to do. Rather, there are eternal purposes that we may not understand, that we can't see. But whatever the reasons, Jesus knows, sees, understands, cares, and in the grand scheme of everything, he's done something about whatever it is you're crying out to him for. He's done something about the brokenness of our lives, brokenness that leads even to death. And what we see in this extraordinary story today, just two weeks before Easter, are two very important things. First, the death and raising to life again of Lazarus, Lazarus was a foreshadowing of what was to come with Jesus. And second, it was also, in some sense, a cause of what was to come for Jesus. This act of Jesus in calling Lazarus out of the tomb is a pivotal moment in the whole Gospel of John. What Jesus did that day in Bethany, just two miles down the road from Jerusalem, was the reason why the religious authorities finally turned on him and plotted to kill him. Our reading ended today with many believing in Jesus because of what he did. Great ending to our reading, except that's not how the story ends. Had we read even more verses, we would have learned this. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told of them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, the, holy, the, the high priest, said to them, you know nothing at all. You don't understand. It's better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. Little did he know what he was saying and how true that was. But from that moment on, they planned to put him to death. Well, when Jesus got the, that message from Mary and Martha, he knew what he was doing when he waited to respond. There was a reason he didn't immediately rush to Bethany. His delay, John tells us, was to lead to God's glory. The glory that came when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. But even more than that, the glory that followed on when Jesus gave up his own life for the world. Jesus knew what the consequences would be for Lazarus and what the consequences would be for himself. God is very tough-minded, willing to do and to allow whatever is necessary for eventual joy and transformation and fulfillment of his eternal purposes. He doesn't waver in that. 
but he is also tender-hearted, weeping with us and suffering with us and for us on the way to that which he purposes. Although they could not see it or understand it at the time, it was out of love that Jesus held back and allowed Mary and Martha to go through all that terrible grief and pain as they did. Jesus could see the big picture that they could not. Often we may want to blame God for not intervening more in our lives. And so we cry out, if only God would do this or that or the other. But I think one of the, one of the lessons of this story and through Jesus' delay in responding to their cry for help is that it reminds us that God is sovereign. He sees the whole picture while so often we see only a fraction. And furthermore, despite all the propaganda to the contrary, our Lord's purpose for us is not primarily to make us happy, but to make us holy. Although we might like a life that has instant answers to all our prayers and cries for help on our terms, according to our timetables, that is rarely, if ever, the route to holiness. Because God does not always answer our prayers when or how we would like, it does not mean that he has not heard us or that he does not love us. Indeed, that is one of the great lessons also in this gospel, is precisely how much God does love us. We see the love that Jesus had for his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. When Mary caught up with her sister and finally comes to Jesus, she says the exact same thing that Martha had said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then we see what happens. Jesus, when he sees her crying, and the Jews and all the others that were around there mourning with her, he was greatly disturbed in his spirit. He was deeply moved. He asks where the tomb is, and then Jesus bursts into tears. Why? Why do you suppose he cries at that point? I think there are probably quite a number of reasons. Let me offer you three. First, Jesus wasn't playing games. He wasn't pulling cosmic strings and, and sort of play-acting his upsetness because he knew what was to come. He wasn't toying with them before making a grand flourish when he would call Lazarus out of the tomb. No, I think what these tears of Jesus show us is that he is indeed the one of whom the prophet Isaiah said years before, who had come. He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He was weeping with those who were weeping. He was mourning with those who were mourning. And it affected him very deeply for their loss, their grief, and their sadness. Second, as Jesus was confronted by all of this, their tear-stained faces and all of those around them, I think that all of that emotion may well have stirred something up within him, something of his own deep sorrow and sadness. You know, if you walk into a room where people are beside themselves with grief, it's hard for that not to happen. 
when I walk into those situations at a hospital bedside or in a living room where someone has just received terrible news, I often find that the grief and the sorrow that I carry in my own heart gets stirred up. You know, last weekend at our healing service on Saturday night, as I prayed for one person in particular, I had tears streaming down my face. Yes, that was partly as I felt their pain and their suffering in the one who had come to, for prayer. But it was also because I was feeling my own pain and my own sense of loss. Well, I think that may have been happening with Jesus also. But for Jesus, that grief was not so much about what had been lost in the past, but about all the pain and the grief that lay ahead of him. For he was on his way to Jerusalem and his own terrible death. Okay, so I said there were three reasons. The first is he feels their pain. Secondly, it stirs up his own pain. And thirdly, I think Jesus wept for an altogether different reason. Twice, John tells us that Jesus was deeply disturbed. First when he saw Mary crying, and then again when he comes to the tomb, just after someone had been ribbing him about, well, he healed that blind man the other day. Why, can't he, why, why couldn't he have done something about Lazarus? Greatly disturbed could equally be translated as very angry. Jesus was more than just sad or sympathetic, more than feeling empathy, more than grieving his own impending suffering. One commentator put it this way, Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger. True, he did also respond with tears, but the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. Now that's pretty strong stuff, the idea that Jesus would feel rage. So let's think about that. If that's right, and I think it could be, what is it that could have caused such anger in Jesus? Well, I think it was death. It was death itself. Jesus was in the beginning with God creating the world. Here, the author of life, of all that was good, was confronted with death. In Mary's grief and in his own, he sees and feels the misery of the whole human race, and he is enraged by that ultimate statistic. You know, one out of one dies. This was not just fear of death. Rather, this was outrage and wrath at death itself. And behind death, the one who had the power of death, and whom he, Jesus, had come into the world to destroy. This is big stuff. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, was confronting death. And in a short while, he was going on to Jerusalem to do that business with death and Satan and the enemy once and for all through his own death on the cross. But here, Jesus demonstrates that he was who he said he was, that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. And so he calls Lazarus, who's been dead four days, 
he calls him out of the tomb. I think one of the many powerful lessons from our scriptures this morning is that there is no situation which is too big or too difficult or is somehow beyond God's help. With God, there is always hope. Indeed, is not, not that the story of the Bible from cover to cover? It is the story of God transforming seem, seemingly hopeless situations into opportunities for showing his glory. But you know, it's one thing to believe that Jesus has the power to raise us from the dead on some future date, but it's quite another to believe that Jesus can do something about our lives in the here and now. There are many Christians who will readily say that they believe that Jesus will give them eternal life, and yet they act as if he has no power to affect their lives in the here and now. They are like Martha saying, Lord, I know that Lazarus will rise on the last day, not realizing that Jesus will raise him on that day. If Jesus has the power to give us life after death, then he certainly has the power to give us life before death. The hope we have as Christians is not just hope for the future, hope for tomorrow, hope for life after death. It is that. It's all of that, yes. But it's also hope for life today. Life that comes to us even in the waste places of our lives. Life that comes through the Holy Spirit as we allow him to breathe his life and love into our hearts. In Ezekiel's dream, once he had asked the Spirit to breathe life into those bodies. He no longer faced a valley of bones, but a large army prepared for action. And God still works in the midst of dryness and deadness to bring his people back to life, to make them ready for action in his service, in his kingdom. God doesn't breathe his life into us so we can get high on some spiritual oxygen. He breathes his life into us so that we can be empowered to follow Jesus, to serve him with our lives, and to reach out to others in their places of deadness with the power of his life-giving spirit. The Lord of Ezekiel's vision, who brought life where there had been only death, and the Lord who raised Lazarus from the dead with a word, is the same Lord whom we worship here today. So let me ask you this. When you consider the fields of dry bones in your life or perhaps in those whom you love, what do you do with that? Do you sit and, and wallow in your misery and despair? Certainly easy enough to do. You know, it's interesting when we encounter Mary and Martha in Luke's gospel, you may recall Mary is kind of the heroine. She's the one who's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to what he said, choosing the better part. Martha, meanwhile, is bustling around and getting all mad at everybody because Mary's not doing any work, and she's not exactly the star. Here, it's all reversed. Whereas it's Martha who gets up and goes out to meet Jesus, Mary, it seems, is kind of debilitated in her grief, in her disappointment. Maybe she was really angry with Jesus. I don't know. But I love what the text says 
after Jesus had arrived just at the edge of Bethany, and he talked with Martha, and then, verse 28, Martha goes back to the house and calls her sister and speaks to her privately and says to Mary, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Do you hear that? Commentator Frederick Bruner writes, sad, depressed Mary, who could not honestly, like her more ebullient sister Martha, go out to meet the tardy Jesus, this unworthy Mary is given Jesus' worthy invitation. The teacher is here, and he's asking for you. And that's true this morning. So, ask the Lord to send his Holy Spirit once again to breathe his life and health and strength into your hearts, into your minds, into your marriages and families, into our church and our community, in order that others would see the glory of God, that others would see in you the truth and the vitality of the hope we have as Christians, hope that persists against all odds, hope that is based on Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Now, I say that not in any triumphalist sense, knowing all too well in my own life that sometimes Jesus doesn't seem to come in time. If I may quote Bruner again, we who read this gospel story today know the end of the story and so have some relief. But this hurting family and every other hurting family before and since does not know future particulars at all and so is very vulnerable. African-American author and activist James Baldwin wrote this, the Lord never seems to get there when you want him, but when he arrives, he's always on time. And surely that fits very well, our gospel story this morning, in the end. But it doesn't at first lessen the pain of the grieving parties in there now. And so we are called to live in the now and the not yet. Christ, the Lord of life, still invites the world to come to him. Death is inevitable for all of us, but Christ has won the victory over death. And he shares that victory with all who repent and believe in him as their Savior and as their Lord. To respond to Christ's invitation is to die to yourself. But to die, in this sense, is to begin to live. As for Jesus, so for us, death leads to resurrection. As the great missionary Jim Elliot once said, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live and everyone who believes in me will never die. And after he said that, he turns to his dear friend Martha and asked her, do you believe this? Well, this morning, the teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And he asks you 
and he asks me, do you believe me? Will you trust me? Amen.